Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 197, recorded March 12th, 2015. So today we're finishing off the Harlan Ellison City at the Edge of Forever adaptation. Yes. Issues three through five. Right. Five issues to tell a story that, from a script that I suppose originally was to support a 50-minute TV show. But right. um, maybe he actually intended it to be two episodes worth. I don't know. But it fits okay in three comic book issues. Uh, I don't feel a lot of uh, pad in here. But um, what do you think? No, the first two issues that we covered last episode, I thought covered a lot of new territory. But once these issues started... It followed the storyline pretty good, and it it didn't it never dragged as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah, me too. And I think the artwork was excellent in how they did some things. So we'll go into a, an issue here where Spock and Kirk have a prolonged conversation about Edith and the future and what has to happen. And I really like how they did it. It was like uh, all pretty much black background and just the two characters talking to each other. You know, different pictures of them saying different things and emoting differently and I just thought that was really well done right yeah artwork is great yeah really good and that emoting thing I think that they did a great job of doing people's faces and especially Kirk emoting (laughs) in various places without the overacting I thought that's pretty good Although I must say, I, I think the Shat did a very good job in this episode, and quite frankly, seasons one and two, I think he, I think he did a really good job as an actor. You know, understated in many ways, and then it was season three that really went overboard. Is that when he really started hamming it up? Oh my gosh, yes, <laughs> <laughs> hamming it up. What a perfect phrase. I agree mm. with that. I, th- I think Shatter did a good job on this original TV episode, and I think they did an excellent job capturing his face and the emotions and getting across what was going on. I think it was very, very well done. And and uh, Nimoy as Spock, too. So right. I think his right. face was quite well captured also. Nope, I agree with you. Uh, and, you know, uh, we I've had this conversation with you before about J.K. Woodward's work and uh, you know, when he did the Star Trek Deep Space Nine, I mean, I'm sorry, Star Trek Doctor Who crossover, mm-hmm. and here, I mean, when the characters in the foreground, they look like it's photorealistic as far as you know. It, it looks just like the actor, right? You know, it, obviously it's a painting, but it looks to me fantastic, right? I know that yep. you sometimes have a problem with it, but it seems like you're, you're the you're watercolor turning. stuff. Yeah, it sounds like you're turning on me. You're you're becoming a fan. Uh, I, I I am not crazy necessarily about the watercolor style in general, but uh, he does a great job with this. What can I say? Mm-hmm. So no, not in general. I'm not a fan in general about watercolor paint-by-numbers art. However, I think <laughs> he is doing a great job with this. Well, come on. 
well, okay, I grew up with that kind of stuff. Paint right. by numbers. Anyway, uh, no, <laughs> amazing job in the in the art department and and the writing. I think the adaptation because there is still some adaptation going on here. It's not, you know, it's not absolutely 100% Harlan Ellison's script, but um, it's exceedingly close supposedly. So right, wonderful. yeah. From according to the 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 letter columns, they they took exactly the the script. You know, the, all the dialogue came straight from the the script because he he even said that Harlan Ellison wanted to tweak a few things, but they they wanted to keep it exactly the way it was originally written. So, oh, okay. I, I have nothing to compare that to. I'm just reading the the letter pages at the end of these issues. So, right. According to the end of the issues, it, it's all 100. percent But uh, but whether okay. that's the case or not, I don't know. Okay. So truly, the only ad- so they didn't cut anything out. And by the way. As they said also in the letters, there were many, many, many revisions of that script. Right. So when you point to the original script, it's like, well, there were a lot of original script versions. So Maybe they're just talking about draft one. Well, I I don't know. I mean, (laughs) he's talking about all the input he was getting from all these different people, even people that probably shouldn't have been giving him input. But he was getting it from all sides, and he had changed it and changed it and changed it and changed it. So maybe this was the final version that they decided not to go with. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm not sure exactly which version, but there were lots of revisions. All right. Well, do you want to want us to get into it so we can I do. find out what we're talking about? Let's do it. I get to do the synopsis for the first one. It is issue number three. Came out August of 2014. The original teleplay was by Harlan Ellison. Adaption by Scott Tipton and David Tipton. Art by J.K. Woodward. Letters by Neil Utaki. And edits by Chris Rial. So from what I've gathered, there's two covers. The first cover keeps in with the old paperback novel type feel for the first two issues this time it's mainly a turquoise type color and we see a picture of kirk and keeler they're perhaps about to kiss we don't know and below them we see a a skyline of 1930s new york cover b is a headshot of kirk and to the right is a shot of keeler looking up at the stars and below the two of them we see the head of spock in his knit cap And below him, we see a 1930s automobile. So the story starts off with Kirk and Spock hiding in a basement from the angry mob from last issue. Spock seems quite upset about what transpired, calling Earthmen barbarians and pointing out that his people never experienced this mentality. Kirk points out that that's the reason why Vulcans started traveling the stars 200 years after humans did. Spock calms down and apologizes for speaking out of turn. The two men then help themselves to some discarded clothing that was in the basement when an old man with a shovel arrives. He offers the pair a job and allows them to stay there in the basement while they're doing the chores that he's offered them. Later, the two are finishing the sweeping they agreed to do when Kirk thinks to ask the tricorder to compute the possible major altercations to history within the 1930s. The computer states that it will take three hours to compute, and Spock warns the captain that this might burn out the little device. About three hours later, I assume, 
the device has completed and has output 616,590 possible focal points. Spock requests that it limit the search to within a 10-kilometer radius when the tricorder informs them that it has damaged the circuits and can no longer function. Before it fizzles out, it gives them some clues. Blue, burning sun, the key. Spock states that he will try to repair it, but he doubts that he'll have much success. The old man that has been giving them room and board overhears some of the conversation, and Kirk tells him that they are worried about some friends. And then we get a quick one-panel flash to Rand and the crew on the pirate ship there in the transporter room. The man states that he can get Spock a job down the street where his race will not be an issue. Flash forward another week, Spock is getting off work. The proprietor of the store tells Spock that it's payday and gives him $9.50 for a week's worth of work. Spock then grabs the man's wrist, bending it back to almost the breaking point, and reminds the man that they agreed upon $10.50 a week. The man says it was just an accident and gives him the extra dollar. Spock leaves, and on his way home, he sees a woman named Sister Edith Keeler on the street. Spock notices that she's wearing a blue cape, and it has a sun clasp around her cloak, and her name is Keeler. And then he thinks of the clues. Blue, sun, key. All the clues that the tricorder and the guardians gave them. He rushes home to tell Kirk. They start to stalk her, even so much as watching her from the nearby rooftop. Eventually, Spock suggests that perhaps Kirk should get closer. The next day, Kirk meets with Edith, and they seem to hit it off quite nicely. They leave to go for a walk as Spock watches them depart. To be continued. Well, Kirk makes his move, eh? Yeah, so I'm a little confused on that, um... Spock did tell him that he should blend in, you know, that he would have more success blending in as a human than than Spock is. Sure. So to me, I took that as Spock saying, you know, maybe you should go get closer to her. But uh, he's kind of giving them the stink eye as they're going out on their walk. (laughs) And and I love Spock's comment about him going native. Right. That was, uh, I like that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Spock still has, you know, respect for the captain and stuff, and he says, you know, you're the captain, you could order me to shut up, but I'm going to let you know what I think, and I don't like what's going on, and it gets worse as the story progresses. Right. I'm kind of glad they took out the clues, blue, sun, key from right. the filmed version, because it seems like he was really grasping at, you know, oh, here she is, her name is Keeler. She has a sun on her, a sun lapel type thing, and she's wearing a blue cloak. Right. Man, and that's really, And really, where... Okay, so the tricorder spat that out at the end. Right. That right? It's like... The, right. Really? But, but the tricorder... Really? The, <laughs> but the Guardians did tell him that uh, when they were going through, so it was just kind of reiterating or, or giving him oh. the Cliff Notes version of what the Guardians said. Oh, right. Okay, that did come from the Guardian. Okay. Well, it was, well, much, it, was it was repeating it, was, it. Yeah, but it was longer-winded when the Guardians were saying it. Yeah, yep, 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 yep. But boy, <sighs> it's co- coincidence that the tricorder, on its dying breath, you know, paraphrased the Guardians. Yeah. 
And by the way, that is something I never liked about the TV episode. The tricorder doesn't have enough... I mean, they treat the tricorder like it was some kind of, um, I don't know, big cassette audio recorder or something. I mean, all it could do is record, but it can't really deal with this amount of data. It's like, come on. I mean, now we can look back and say, I mean, our phones could far exceed the processing power of mainframes uh, right. from decades ago. And what, what, imagine what would happen in another couple hundred years. But I never liked that about the TV show. At least this script, and again, it's supposed to be an unaltered script. At least this script is giving the tricorder some pretty cool computational abilities, which I think is a lot more in alignment with what we would think of it being able to do today, rather than people in the 60s. Right. But it does burn out pretty fast for, for no apparent reason. Well, I'll agree with that, too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, a, a computer is just going to go as fast as it can go, and it's going to basically not give your answer in any reasonable amount of time if it's too big a, uh, a calculation, but it's not going to burn out. Yeah, I agree with right. that. Right, and, and I thought that three hours to, you know, evaluate all of human history from the 1930s wasn't all that bad. I mean, that's a that's a lot of data that it had to churn through. Right. Three hours didn't seem all that bad to me. <laughs> right. So this data all came from video feeds? So it had to interpret video feeds? I mean, it's not like this was in, encoded, you know, into uh, ASCII, whatever, you know, that the tricorder could easily uh, absorb. But I guess that amazing future technology of that software in the tricorder can take all this video information and properly interpret it and parse it and whatever. So why do you think it was video? Why do, I mean, they, they acted like it was just computing like, a, like the mainframe did on the, uh, on the Enterprise itself. Like it, well, it, like it had the data well, stored. Like it... But all they showed us... well. All... <clears throat> All the Guardian showed it, showed them was video information. I mean, yeah, but I don't think definitely I don't, on the TV that, show. That's from the TV show. From the from this episode, I didn't get that they recorded anything and tried so, to time so their they, jump or anything like that. Because okay, the Guardian but, just opened the portal and said, "All right, jump in. You'll you'll come in. You'll go a little before Beckwith did." Okay, but they were showing sailing ships. They were showing dinosaurs. dinosaurs. They were showing right. video things, you know, visual things. So it was actually sending it over an XML stream of data that that they knew think, what the thing, what the tricorder needed to take in. It wasn't visual. Okay, that's no, very, no, no. That's very good. Uh, no, I think that. Uh, and again, I don't know. I don't think it, it's, it's only a story. It says. I know the TV show said that they were rewatching the video footage, but um, I didn't get that from from this story. I thought that it was just using its own memory banks to see what event in the 1930s could have ramifications in the future. I thought that's what it was computing. I didn't know it was okay. just reading through the the video files that it recorded, like it did in the TV show. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Well, I'm just wondering... Well, maybe it's just because all we could see in the comic book and all we could see in the TV series was video input. That's all we could see. But maybe it was also sending data streams that the tricorder could pick up. Whatever, it doesn't matter. The main I just point thought is, that it already had... Mem- I thought it just... That's part of the, you know... Oh, it was already it loaded through. with this information. 
that it was that advanced that it had all of human record on this tricorder at any given time. Yeah. Hey. Which is which? That's which, that's maybe 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 that's what they were saying. Which <laughs> hey, I, it's amazing. I got a jump drive that's 128 gigabytes on it, so that's. Yeah, so just By, imagine in, in 200 how, years from now, who knows? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, well, that's, that's right. I will not discount that and say that cannot be. And look how big that thing is. Yeah. And weren't they... <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, so tricorder and... Uh, yeah, I, I thought they handled the capabilities of a tricorder better in the comic, in the original script, than in the uh, the TV episode. And the tricorder and, talks. Has has the tricorder ever talked before? No. Okay. Not that I not that I recall. That's an yeah, interesting point. I don't remember that ever happening before. And the idea that Spock would be able to put together a computer complete with flashing like little lightning things coming up, electricity, arcing electricity mm-hmm. bolts, whatever could do more things than the tricorder could do, I thought that was really kind of a misstep in the TV episode. Although that did look, it looked cool, and I guess it gave them a good excuse for going out and... Uh, getting jobs and stuff. Getting jobs and getting food and getting parts that he could put together this thing. And right. some great great humor. I mean, I love some of the humor. Right. Oof. When Keeler sees it, I'm sure I won't get it all right because it's been a while since I've seen the episode. But uh, she says, "What is that?" And then, and then Spock says, "Miss Keeler, I'm attempting to construct a duotronic blah 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 using stone knives and bearskins." I thought that was great. <laughs> it's a great joke. Right. So back to this issue. Did you think some of the humor might have been a little racist? They keep really stressing that he's Chinese. Ah, that he looks they, Chinese. Yeah, don't they even call him China Man or something at some point or, or something that I thought was maybe a maybe it wasn't this issue. Maybe it's key, something Keeler says later, but I thought, wow, that's not quite PC. No, but that might have been what they might have said in that day. In the 60s or the 30s? Cause we got... No, no, the 30s. Because <laughs> it was no. written in the 60s, supposed well, to be based in the 30s. I know. <laughs> I know what you're saying. I'm, I'm saying the 30s, saying. man. Right. Yeah, and that, that apparently was something that uh, Ellison really wanted to tackle. And apparently Roddenberry and the producers didn't. So they only had minimal references to Spock looking like a, a Chinese person or an Asian right. person. Right. So they wanted to... His... Yeah. His ears caught in the rice picker. Yeah, a mechanical rice picker. Yes. All right. That's not racist, no. Yeah, anyway. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I thought some of the humorous interactions they had between Spock and Kirk in the comic was okay, but I wasn't getting any big guffaws out of them. No. And in fact, they seem more adversarial here than they do in the show. I mean, Spock well, really yeah. has a chip on his shoulder in this whole issue. Yes, he does. And especially when Edith and Jim start getting googly eyes for each other. Yeah, that'll be more next issue, right? Yeah. Yep. But this issue, he has the whole argument that humans are barbarians and mm-hmm. his people have never been like that, which and, I, I know this was written. That's BS. Oh, 
Well, technically, this was written before we knew about the Romulans and stuff. Well, not only the Romulans, but the original Vulcan society that fathered those two races. Right. They were extremely barbaric. They almost destroyed themselves. Exactly. But, yeah. you know, this was, I think Harlan Ellison said that he wrote this before yeah. any of the episodes were actually filmed, so yeah. they were... There was still a lot of history, a lot what... of fleshing characters out that hadn't happened yet. Right. Yeah, True. so... <clears throat> so I, I I had to reread it several times about the him saying that about not having violent ancestors and saying Kirk saying that the Vulcans entered space 200 years after the humans. Yeah, and what's that about? I I still don't understand what that meant. Well, because Vulcans were so pacifist that they just sat around on their planet and didn't have any ambition to go out. <laughs> uh, that's the way I took it. Well, well, but hold on. Okay, so, and again, this it's it's a flip a little bit because there's a lot of history that, that we didn't have. But we all know from Enterprise and First Contact and things like that, and I know Ellison didn't know that, but mm-hmm. the Vulcans had been out exploring space, you know, when we were just still recovering from World War III. So. Right, right. So that obviously doesn't ring very well to what would happen in the history of Star Trekdom. Right. Yeah, that's been changed. Yeah. So Ellison's script is trying to say that mankind, Earth, found the Vulcans and brought them up technologically? Uh, possibly, or just <laughs> that they, they didn't get started until 200 years after man was, was out in the stars. And well, I don't okay, know, but... even know if that's what it means, just stars, or just means like, you know, going to the moon. You know, does that, well, is and that Kirk counting that as the start? Well, I don't know, but let's say he did. So, and this, so this, I mean, Taz took place like 200 years after like 1969, right? 200 years in the future, right? Yep. So, he's saying, (laughs) if that's true, then he's saying that the Vulcans just barely got into space well then. So they don't have much experience in space then. Right. I don't think they actually dated themselves. Yeah. No, that's the way I took it. Yeah. But I don't think they dated themselves in the, to be the 23rd century until later, right? I mean, I, was I that in the I beginning exactly. that, it was, that, that they always say? Well, they, they always the use the star dates. They use they use the star yeah, dates. Yeah, which was just a bunch and, of random numbers. Yeah, exactly. They just threw them together. Um, but I thought Roddenberry always intended to be like 200 years in the future, but mm. maybe that's something that came later. I don't know. Right. Right. Yeah. Anyway, I am a little confused about the fact that when they were first talking about getting a job and Kirk was saying, no, no, honey, you stay here and work on the tricorder while I get a job. And then what happens is the first person you see with a job is uh, is Spock, uh, which was confusing for me. Now, now, I know the old guy or the guy that said, oh, I got a place that, you know, they can get Chinese people uh, jobs. Right. Um, but still, it was just 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 the opposite of what they were just talking about five minutes ago. Anyway, whatever. Well, I took it that Kirk was doing jobs while right. Spock was just sweeping up the house or whatever. You know, I don't know. For oh, sure, at that but... other business. Well, at that other yeah, business, or, whatever or that somewhere business else. was. Yeah. Yeah. And then well, Spock got that job at the shop because this guy knew that he would hire foreigners. Sure, and try to jip them out of pay. 
chip him out of that buck. And oh, boy, right. Spock does not like that. No, he does not. He is displaying an awful lot of emotion. He couldn't uh, say, uh, sorry, sir, you agreed to 1050. He's like, I want to break your leg. I mean, your arm. <laughs> I'm just like, this is not Spock. No, this is not Spock. He's not so whiny either. So Whiny? Yeah. Whiny? Your people are barbarians! Oh, oh. In the we were never like that! <laughs> no, I'm talking about in this comic. He's kind of whiny. Yeah. Right. Well, later, I, I cut it out of the synopsis, but when they're on the rooftop and he's complaining about the food that he has to eat and stuff like that, oh, I was right. just like, oh, I, um, this this doesn't really add to the story. No. That he could only eat asparagus or something like that. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Not enough Cabbage vegetable. and asparagus. Not enough variety of vegetables. Anyway, so my only other comment is, man, Harlan Ellison has aged. I mean, just, I mean, he must be that old by now, but just looking at some of the photos they have in some of these issues, mm, he's really up there. Right. It just, you, you just lose track of when you don't see people for a while, and then you see him again, it's like, well, he's really up there. Right. In age. I, I never knew what he looked like before, so I don't know. I don't have anything to compare it to. Yeah, well, I've seen some interviews with him long ago when he was a younger writer. Right. So uh, my only comment on this issue, uh, actually I got two. One, I think they say later on uh, that Spock is half human, but here, you know, especially when he's talking about how Earthmen are so barbaric, mm-hmm. he he really acts like he's not also human. Yeah. Um, did yeah? I don't remember. The, did they mention he's half human? I I think later in, in one of the other issues, I think it's kind of mentioned. Maybe that he's, he's half human. Yeah. Well, that must be the whiny half, I guess. <laughs> and then the uh, my last comment is, uh, you know, we, we talked so much about how Rand had such a big part in the first two issues, and there mm-hmm. she was on the pirate ship, and we get one little window, one little frame of what might be happening on the pirate ship right now. Right. Uh, I was a little disappointed in that, that I would have liked to have seen her more in these three issues than than what we we do see yeah well it's a lot less than we were expecting i think we both were saying about the possibility they might go back and forth a little bit so like parallel stories of what's going on and they did but it's like just that one little snippet so yeah Yeah, i I, I agree i I think i would have been interested seeing more of that i mean am i spoiling anything by saying that that's the last time we see rand uh in the book at, yeah, no. in any of these books, in the story. No, nah, nah, it's fine. We're, we'll get to the other two in a few minutes, so right. it's fine. So anyways, I was disappointed in that part. Yeah, yeah. Okay, right, they could have done it. more with it. Right. But the script didn't, so we want right, to go by right. the script. So. No, it okay. was just, you know, it was just an exciting possibility to see Rand do something more than hand Kirk the thing to sign. Yeah, do more of that, because she was kicking butt in those first issues, which is cool. Right, right. Okay, so let's go on to issue number four. This one has a published date of September 2014. All the same people were involved. I won't repeat it. They all did a great job. Okay, so we have a couple covers. The first cover is by Juan Ortiz and shows a red sky over Manhattan. 
Part of Spock's face is in the sky looking down on Kirk and Edith Keeler together and smiling. The subcover is also by Juan Ortiz and it features Kirk and Spock's head and upper torsos in 1930s threads. Next to them is Beckwith in his gold tunic armed with a Type 2 phaser. In the background there are bridges and skyscrapers of Manhattan. Kirk and Edith are on a nice walk and getting to know each other. They are walking on one of the bridges. They hold hands. A day or more later, Kirk comes home to Edith's apartment after a hard day at work. Edith comforts him and comments on some of the odd things he says. Kirk holds her as if she will fly away if he lets go. She is surprised, but likes where things are going. Later, Spock tells Kirk of his concerns over how involved Kirk is becoming with Edith. Kirk says he has to stay close to Edith. There's no way of knowing exactly when Beckwith will arrive and be drawn to her. Kirk tells Spock why he is drawn to her. Kirk says maybe he can take her back to the future with him. She is unimportant here in the past. Spock tells Kirk that he is wrong about that. He has repaired the tricorder well enough to play back some of history. Enough to know that in the correct timeline, she will die. She must die to restore the future. Kirk does not want to believe this and tells Spock he does not want to talk about it. Spock says he will leave his captain alone, but time will not. Kirk and Edith are walking to a speaking engagement of hers when they pass by a musical instrument store where a woman is singing a love song. Edith says she loves that song and asks Jim to go down to take a listen. They walk down a flight of stairs and Edith slips and falls down a few stairs to the bottom. She turns out to be okay, but wonders why Jim did not at least attempt to grab her. Kirk is uncomfortable about his own actions or the lack thereof. Later, Kirk and Spock are together on a sidewalk staring across the street at a storefront. They know something of the future. Spock says he hopes his calculations are not off. Finally, they see the outline of a large man appearing out of thin air. Beckwith materializes fully. Kirk and Spock make their move to capture him. Spock drives Beckwith into the wall. But for the second time, the burly villain is able to knock the physically superior Vulcan back to the ground. Beckwith makes his escape. They see he is running in the general direction of the milk kitchen where Edith works. They reach the kitchen, and Kirk gets Edith to leave and go to her apartment. He talks her into staying in her apartment for now. He suggests she sleep for an hour or so. They finally say they love each other. Kirk meets Spock outside the apartment. Kirk tells Spock he can't know how it is with Edith. Spock says he is correct, but he does know how it is with the people they left behind. The people who trusted them to save their lives. Are they still alive in that transporter room, Captain? Kirk says he can't let Edith die. Spock says, in that case, Beckwith wins. Time has changed. Spock turns and Kirk grabs at his arm which causes Spock to drop a rolled-up blanket he has been carrying. When it hits the ground, a phaser is exposed. Confused, Kirk says he won't need that for Beckwith. They must take him back to the future alive. Kirk says slowly with blossoming awareness, 
It wasn't for Beckwith, was it Spock? Spock silently gathers up his bundle and walks away from Kirk. As he continues down an alley, he hears a snap behind him. It's Beckwith. He attacks Spock, and the bundle is dropped. Beckwith picks up the phaser and runs away from Spock. Spock attempts to follow, but Beckwith comes close to shooting Spock with the phaser. Only Spock's ability to hit the ground fast saved his life. Spock gets up and weighs his next move. To be concluded. Action-packed there at the end. It was quite action-packed. I particularly like Spock's agility in dodging a phaser blast. Right. He's doing a somersault over it. Yeah, something like that. Or pinwheel or something like that. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Serpentine, serpentine. Yeah, so I got to say, I I know Beckwith is a big burly guy and stuff, but it's like Spock is really kind of inept (laughs) at capturing this guy. I mean, he even gets the first... He gets the first blows in with Beckwith, uh, down by the Guardians, and then here again he he's able to land the first blow. Yet Beckwith is able to shrug it off and, you know, put Spock on his butt. Right. Well, this is before we found out that Vulcans had super strength <laughs> and super hearing and super everything else. Yes. Mm. <laughs> um. Yeah, so I'm glad they drew Beckwith as a big, burly guy, because it makes this stuff a little bit more believable. Right. Yeah, he's a big dude. Yeah, yeah. He's a big, scary dude. Anyway. Um... Which, if, if, you know, if you're going to start a new drug, you want to take it from a big, burly dude. <laughs> I don't know. If, if that guy walked up to me and was like, hey, you want to try some of this dream crystals? I'm yeah. Uh-huh. You're freaking me out. I'm leaving. You're scary. You got to have a salesman. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, apparently he only had to do it once, and then he was hooked. And they're all hooked. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's another thing that Beckwith's character, I mean, this is it. All he does is show up, fight, run off. Show up, fight, run off. Yeah. Uh, not to not much of the next part. issue too much, but... Uh... <laughs> he keeps going. but then he breaks the pattern in an unexpected way which we'll talk about next issue right but I I don't know I kind of wanted to see him do more of the you know trying to sell some of the dream crystals maybe he has in his pockets to uh, to some of the 1930s folks and who knows maybe he did we We, did see we we don't see all of his movements right but I would have liked to have seen some of that. What's he doing in between the the fights with Kirk and Spock? You know, because oh, because just... in the original one we knew what McCoy was doing. He was laid up, you know, high from Recovering. his uh, yeah his, his yeah. injection. But uh, but here we don't we don't ever know what Beckwith is doing when he's when he's not in a uh, alleyway True. fighting these two guys. Right. Speaking of fighting, mm-hmm. I really really enjoyed where Spock drops the phaser in front of Kirk. And then Kirk realizes that it's for Edith. And by the way, it's kind of be it's kind of BS because quite frankly, if I was going to try to take Beckwith, the heck with all this, you know, this manual attacking the guy, just shoot him with stun on. It's like just get it over with. It's like doing Indiana Jones, just shoot him. 
<laughs> right. But but anyway, but the main point is when Kirk realizes that it's for Edith and Spock is convinced enough about his assessment of what the situation that he's willing to kill her himself. I think that is some really cool, you know, man versus man conflict there. And none of it's violence. It's all just two people with very diametrically opposed opinions about how they want things to go. And I think that is great conflict. Right. But we don't know. He doesn't know how she's supposed to die, does she? Does he? He, he doesn't know that I don't she think has so. I, I don't think he, he never said that. He never said he right. knew. So, I mean, how would you know? I mean, if he shoots her, that could change history more than having her live, maybe. I don't know. Because maybe I, the he, reason maybe her getting hit by that car, you know, the driver of the car then feels really bad and he dedicates his life to something that, that he wouldn't <laughs> have normally dedicated his life to if he didn't hit the, the poor woman in the street. That is you know, so – oh, my God. I think you're, I think you're onto something there. Well, I'm just saying we don't know where the what what's the real ripple. Is it just that she dies and she isn't there, or that her death then triggers something else that the way she dies, not necessarily that she died. So I don't I don't I don't buy that he could just shoot her and and not affect the time stream. Hmm. But yeah. we don't know. Well, we don't know, and at least the TV episode was more specific. I mean, he showed the evidence; they were able to play it back. Right. So they saw exactly what happened uh, and how she was so pivotal. This one, it's a lot more nebulous. Right. So you just don't know. And and back to your comment. Oh, yeah, right. What? But back to your comment about shooting Beckwith as soon as he pops out. Yeah. They've already destroyed, you know, lampposts and other things. So I'm with you. They they could stun him as as soon as he walks out. Yeah. And then just, you know, run off like they did before. Sure, they have to carry a big, giant guy, but... Uh... Yeah. Because time, time wouldn't reset itself until she doesn't die, right? In, the, in that way, how the... Isn't that the trigger point to get him back to the future? Well, that and they were saying that they, they need to take him back with them. So they can't kill him, because that's the other option. Kill him, and therefore you save Edith. But they also said, "Oh, we got to bring him back with us." I thought so. he just wanted to bring him back because that's that's what you do. That's what that's what you stand don't trial and stuff. You gotta, you gotta, yeah. Well, I I, I thought they were saying they had to bring him back, but yeah, you're saying the reason they had to bring him back is they're the good guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're probably right. Right. That's the way I took it. Right. Okay. So. Um, you know, another thing that continues on is Kirk. I mean, at least Kirk tried to fire at him back with when he went through the vortex. Yeah, but as, as we're issue. yeah, but as we're going to see in the next issue, Kirk's pretty useless there too. And so, it, I mean, it, it's Spock that's doing all the heavy lifting in this episode, in this issue. Yeah, Kirk's and the, the lover one. in this one. Not he the is the lover. He's not the fighter, no. And I got to say, it's like okay, Kirk was not this. I mean, Kirk is actually at least making choices in his mind, at least in their their discussions, that he wants to save her, and he's going to let everybody go to hell. I mean, uh, go to hell. Uh, He's going to let everybody go um, 
you know, he's going to let the future die. I mean, is what he's saying basically here in this in the conversation with Spock. And right. I don't think Kirk ever went that far in the TV episode. I mean, right. he he didn't want to do it, but he was he knew what he had to do, and he definitely right. proved that he knew what he had to do in the final minutes of the episode. But, right. TV yeah. Episode. The the most pivotal the most pivotal part in the whole episode was him letting her get hit by that car. Yep. Yep. Right. So no, I uh, love I like the script, but I think I see good things in both ways that they that they produced it. Right. Which I might have said in the last issue, but I'm definitely saying it now, or our last uh, episode. Right now, when he talked about bringing her to the future, um, one, I don't know how they would do that since they don't really control the guardians and who, right. when they get pulled back to the future. But it did bring up an interesting point. I mean, if she did just need to die, if she went to the future, she's as good as dead, right? In the 30s. Right. Yep. And then it kind of got me to thinking about when in Star Trek Four when. Uh, Doctor, oh, her name's not Doctor Marcus, but uh, uh, what's what, the her citation? Name? The citation the, scientist? Yeah, right. The whale yeah, doctor. The whale doctor, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. So when she got brought to the future, I mean, I never thought about what ramifications her disappearance in the the '80s would have would have caused the future. Sure. Did anybody? Hey, she's cute. Did anybody even care? Yeah. Or care about what kind of things she might do in the future, since she was there. That might change the even further future. <laughs> further down the line. Who knows? Right. Yeah, she could have brought some disease or something that they don't have a cure for anymore. No, that's true. But they needed somebody that knows whales. Because quite frankly, I don't think you can rebuild any population from just two critters. Not enough genetic diversity. So... Yeah, but then you I can need start a doctor. splicing their DNA and uh, just cloning. Well, you'd, have to, you'd have to do something like that. Right. Not enough genetic diversity. Anyway, so any more comments on this one? My last comment is – I got two more. One, the fall down the stairs. I liked uh-huh. how it was done here uh, more so than in the TV show. Uh, here, he just let her go the whole way down the flight of stairs. <laughs> Which, uh, which in the show, obviously, he caught her. Right. So which, I thought that quite was frankly, Well, yeah. And the thing is, so obviously there, Kirk is making the decision that maybe I shouldn't grab her. I should let her go down because that's what history required. Right. So he made the decision to let her go down. And quite frankly, and look at how awkward he looks in that last panel where he's almost like whistling and turning away from her or something. Because he feels yeah, very awkward right. about the whole situation, I, I could, you know, either way is fine. But I like the way they did it in the TV show, where you know Kirk is still wrestling with what has to happen. But in that case, well, in that case, he 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 saved her from at least a bruise or something. It didn't turn out to be the way she was supposed to die, so it worked out okay. Right. But, I kind of like that he potentially saved her at one instance, but then at the end of the episode, he makes a decision to let her die. So it, mm, it, it yeah. shows a little bit more conflict there, you know. And here, him letting her go down the stairs, it just makes him look like an idiot or a jerk. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I don't know. 
Oh, kind of. Do you think they continued their date after that? Like, she just <laughs> got up and brushed herself off and was like, all right, let's go listen to this music. Yeah, thanks a lot, bonehead. You didn't even try to grab me. Jeez. Jeez, oh, Manish. It's, it's, it's a horrible fall, too. I mean, she's... Well, she's all splayed out there, isn't she? <laughs> yeah, she went down. <laughs> exactly. The last thing I have to say is, I love the photos at the end of the issue. So it's it's Harlan and some of the guys that produced the uh, comic, or comics, and right. there's also uh, Grace Lee Whitney's there. So that was that's pretty cool. Although, oh my uh, gosh, well, great that Grace Lee is still plugging away. I'll tell you. But so I remember, think... I remember oh, at the the first Star Trek convention I went to. Grace Lee Whitney was there, and she was like, it was she and um, uh, Walter Koning. They were the big headliners. And she was still hot, but she she just looks a little older in these photos. I wonder why. Well, because she is, I know. But, <laughs> but she, yeah. Though, you know, I, I, for her age, she probably looks great. Right. But... Yeah, the only thing I thought when I saw those pictures is um, her hair. Uh-huh. I mean, is she trying to make her hair look like it did back in the day, kind of kind of big? A little bit. Or do you bit. think that's how she keeps her hair normally? I, I, uh, maybe she does, but I think she does that for the fans. Because that's kind of her uh, her hairstyle in the, in the series, I think. Although, didn't she have like a beehive kind of thing at times? Right. So it's not the beehive thing. No. But. When I think of her, I think of that little red cap she wore in uh, Gold Key issue number one. Nah. <laughs> really? Even though what, it's not really? Grace Lee Whitney, but uh, Rand wore, wore that little hat for, for no reason. Just Yeah. <laughs> she was wearing a red hat. Yeah. Well, mix it up a little bit. Uh, anyways. Yeah, no, the pictures are cool. And I think they have that picture of... Uh, yeah, of Harlan Ellison with the the Guardian of the Galaxy. Yeah, w- walking. Yeah, walking or through the gateway. The, yeah, yeah, the Guardian of Forever. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I thought that was cool. So he's got his glasses and his and his jacket, and he's walking through the gateway, or at least standing on it. Whatever. That that was a good one. I wonder if that's the real Guardian or if that's uh, just a replica. I think it's probably a replica. I'm guessing. You think they just destroyed it the next week and moved on to something? Well, maybe it's the, something they move around. But you're not suggesting that it was the one from the original show. Uh, I'm just wondering. I mean, some of I that think stuff it probably is, still isn't. Exist. Well, yeah, right. it's possible. It's possible. It's possible. A lot of times when TV shows and movies are over, you know, especially in the old days, they just dump it because they right. don't want to store it. Right. They don't want right. to pay for the space. So I see that probably as a recreation, but who knows? Right, and and I was thinking that too, but it, it in the little caption it didn't say replica, so I was wondering what mm-hmm. if they did what if they did keep maybe, that for some maybe it's possible. Would I thought maybe cool? you would know. I don't know. I have no clue. All right. Okay. Was that your so, last one? That's my last one, man. Last thing for me to say on that one. Let's get to the thrill-packed ending, which we all really know, but we don't know the nuances, do we? We don't know right. the little differences that they have 
in the original script. So let's find out. And there's a few. There are. All right, so this is issue number five. It came out of October of 2014. Um, all the creative staff are the same. Again, there's two covers. The first cover is mostly baby blue, with the exception of a artistic white silhouette profile of Edith Keeler. Within the swirls of her hair, we see the silhouette of the Enterprise. And then within her face, we see the silhouette of Kirk. It's very interesting cover. The other cover is uh, more of a traditional painting cover. It shows headshots of Kirk, Spock, Ahur, McCoy, and Rand in her traditional beehive. And then above them, we see the Enterprise. So the story starts off with the search for Beckwith. Kirk befriends a legless man selling apples on the corner. Kirk gives the man a couple of bucks and asks him to keep an eye out for someone in some odd clothing. And then he flashes a glimpse of his own gold, gold tunic for a reference. Later, Kirk is having dinner with Edith. Kirk is distracted, and he eventually tells her that he loves her. As if on cue, Spock knocks on the door with news and informs Kirk that the homeless man has spotted Beckwith. The two depart and head to the address given. There they find the homeless man again, and he gives the man a couple extra bucks. They creep down the alley and find Beckwith. The larger man is standing on the rooftop, and instead of firing on them with a phaser, he throws a trash can down and knocks Spock to the ground. He lines up his phaser on Kirk and fires, but before the beam can hit Kirk, the homeless man pushes him out of the way and takes the shot himself, disintegrating. Using increased Vulcan strength, which I guess he now has, Spock throws the trash can back up to Beckwith, causing him to drop the phaser into the alley below. Once he regains his balance, Beckwith runs away. Spock and Kirk contemplate the gravity of what was done. What will the death of the legless homeless man mean to the timeline? The duo head back to the apartment. There they watch Edith's latest soapbox speech. When it is done, she's crossing the street as an oncoming truck speeds by. Beckwith is also there, and he sees the woman about to get hit. He darts out to save her. Kirk watches in horror, knowing that he should not help her. Spock uses some sort of super speed, and he crosses the street and stops Beckwith, leaving only Edith in the street as the car plows into her. Kirk presses his eyes closed in the horror of what happened. The fabric of time is now correcting itself. Kirk is being propelled back to his own time as the Enterprise fades back into existence above the Guardian's planet. Kirk, Spock, and Beckwith step out of the portal of the Guardians. Spock's first question is about the homeless veteran that Beckwith killed. The Guardians point out that his death was negligible, not enough to change the flow of history. Beckwith breaks away from Spock and leaps into the portal again. Kirk states that the whole ordeal has started over. The Guardians point out that this is not the case, since Beckwith leaped into a repeating time loop. He will spend the rest of eternity within the hot embrace of a supernova, melting and reforming only to melt again. Later, on the ship, Spock and Kirk talk in the captain's quarters. Spock is troubled by the evil Beckwith's noble act of trying to save Keeler. They agree that good can come from evil and vice versa. 
Kirk admits that he loved Edith, and Spock states that perhaps she was the most loved woman in the universe for it. The end. Da, 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 da. Well, a pretty good ending, but I gotta say, and I think we've said it before, it was Kirk stopping Edith in the end that gave the ending more dramatic impact than what we see here in the script. Right. And good yeah. point about how Spock was able to get across the street and stop Beckwith. Right. So, yeah, so I didn't really put, maybe I didn't spell it out well, but Kirk and Spock are on one side of the street. Edith and Beckwith are on the other side of the street. Edith walks really slow, I guess, and stops in mm -hmm. the middle of the street. Beckwith tries to run out and get her, and Spock crosses the street, passes Edith in order to <laughs> tackle Beckwith and stop him from saving her. Right. It's amazing. How did he do it? I don't know. It's like the magic bullet, but it's the <laughs> magic Spock. Yeah. That was a little awkward. Uh, much better in the TV series since McCoy was coming up from behind Kirk and Spock and uh, right. Spock could easily reach his arms out and he did so. right well not Spock but Kirk oh I said Spock sorry yeah Kirk was e easily able to reach his arms out so uh, or I shouldn't say easily it was quite hard but not physically hard right so we'll yeah I really like that Kirk is the one that stops McCoy from saving her, knowing that he loves her and knowing that that's the right thing to do. Right. Which you don't get that in this one. I mean, Kirk is just standing there, you know, obviously upset, but... And pretty useless, quite frankly. Well... If I may say so. He still let her get hit, so he, he could have stopped her if he wanted to. Yeah. If Spock wouldn't have, you know, shot him or whatever. <laughs> if he tried... Because you know Spock's, Spock's shoot happy in this one. Well, actually, he's he's carrying a gun around a lot, but has he actually fired it? Uh, mm, maybe, maybe not. But <laughs> yeah, uh, between Beckwith and Kirk, they're the guys that are shooting. But yeah, so um, so the legless veteran at the beginning, mm. he had a, a a cardboard sign around his neck saying uh, what I. I fought at Verdun. Verdun, Verd right. Verdun, Verdun. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. So um, I figured it was probably a World War One thing, so I did a little look-up. And indeed, it was a famous World War One conflict, and it took place. The Battle of Verdun took place in 1916 on the Western Front between the French and German armies in the north part of eastern France. So apparently he was in that conflict. And... Um, lost his legs. Yay. Well, not yay. That's terrible. That's... That was sarcasm. Oh, okay. That was a, so, um... But interesting how he's drawn. At first, he looked familiar, and then I kind of quickly kind of thought, you know, he kind of looks like um, Harlan Ellison. So, um... I think the... I think J.K. really wanted to basically use Harlan... Harlan's face in this um, in this veteran, I think. Yeah, I'm I'm comparing his his the painting of the homeless guy to the pictures at the end of uh, four. Right. And yeah, I can see it. Yeah, not perfect, mind you, but close enough. That sure. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's him. And why not? After all. 
Right. Yeah, I just wonder why uh, Harlan Ellison wanted to be the guy without legs and who gets killed. Well, maybe it wasn't his idea, but um, <laughs> I'm but sure he's he very went along fine well, with I mean, it. he died. He dies saving oh, yeah. Kurt. He dies a, a noble death. Right. As opposed to the bum in the in the actually filmed episode who right robs McCoy and then shoots himself. Right. That was just dumb and dishonest. I, I still don't know how he did it. I think it's cool that he did it, but you know he he didn't he didn't go with Kurt into the alleyway, and yet somehow he's able to scoot on his you know skateboard through the alley and save Kirk. Yeah. Well, obviously, of his own volition, he was following him. Right. But uh, you're right. That's you know, it's a certain amount of distance to be able to cover on a uh, on a wheeled board like that. Right. So, what do you think about uh, Beckwith getting his just desserts by being plunged into that uh, fractured time thingy, whatever? That loop. <laughs> uh, the painting is awesome. Uh, I, I love the the artwork is is really fantastic. Oh yeah. Uh, and then I, I think it's funny that he's just. I mean, is he on a planet? Is he even breathing, or is he just going to have to oh, live? Yeah, with I don't know. He's in the middle of a supernova. He ain't nowhere. He just keeps on getting ripped to pieces. It's like, oh well, he my can't gosh. be in the middle of it, right? Because he's doesn't it like repeat itself. So he's so, he has to be somewhere where he's not melted, and then really? the supernova happens, and he's melted, and then he's back to not melted. I don't know. Well, the main point is, it's like, wow, Beckwith was a jerk, but man, that seems a little harsh, doesn't it? Uh, right. Yeah, it's it's he's literally in hell. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. By the way, I don't know if you read this in the back. You probably did. But in one of the issues, the name Beckwith came from a bully that uh, <laughs> right. that Ellison knew in his childhood. So yeah. So maybe this is way of getting back to him. I I think to some degree it's uh it's Ellison's payback. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I hadn't thought about that part. Yeah, yeah. And especially since, you know, in the end, he did attempt to save Edith. So, and they talk more about it later. I mean, quite frankly, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me that he would do that, uh, considering what a what a grade A jerk he, he demonstrated that he was during uh, mm-hmm. most of the, issue, the all the issues. That right. in the end, he would have that that selfless desire to save somebody very unexpected a little odd but uh, and when it happened it was like what the heck is going on here but then they talked about it later and it's like okay okay yeah that's cool you know redemption is possible even for the most vile so it didn't take for very long no because then he just jumps into a supernova yeah, and it's like the idea that it's it's just all of his own making. Yes, it's all of his own making. But oh man, that's mm, I don't don't know if he quite deserved that. But eh. right, maybe he was just gonna save her so that he could then rob her. Maybe he was never going to stop the car from getting her. He just wanted to get to the purse first. Oh come on, <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so either. Huh? He's a little bit more. He's a little bit more interested in keeping his freedom. 
so he should have ran the other way when he saw them. But right. I guess he was drawn to Edith Keeler, the focal point. Yeah, that's what they said. Yeah, that's what they said. And maybe that's part of what explained why he tried to save her. Is cause some re- for some reason he felt he drawn to her. Who knows? Anyway, so um, very good series of books. I don't know that there's anything I could say now that I didn't say before. So thoroughly enjoyed it. No, Anyways. they were they were great. Yeah. Yeah. Again, the only thing I would have liked some sort of exposition on is what happened to Rand, right, on the pirate ship, and then once time reset, does that mean that she's back on the planet too, where she was before the Enterprise disappeared, or is she just on the Enterprise now, as if it well, never she- disappeared? She's on the Enterprise, just like Kirk's on the Enterprise. I mean, yeah, but he doesn't. When time resets itself, he jumps back through the portal. Where where would Rand be? Because she was on the pirate ship pirate when ship. he went through the portal. Pirate ship's not there in this timeline. I yeah, but the Enterprise is. So she just. I'm gonna. I'm went gonna. From... I'm gonna theorize. The only thing that makes sense is that she's on the Enterprise, since supposedly the Enterprise supposedly was the pirate ship. Which I don't agree with, but... Yeah, and there was no evidence of that, right? Yes, there was. Look at the transporter console. Well... It looked, it looked, it looked very much... transporter consoles look the same. Oh, and how did Rand know how to fix it? She's so awesome. Well, she's awesome. I agree. Look at the transporter pads and, and the transporter area where people step up on. That's the Enterprise. Sorry. Mm, but they, they never show the exterior. It doesn't, so make, it doesn't, make, it doesn't make sense, I know, but... That's the only thing that makes sense. It doesn't now, make sense pirate, in a way, and but yeah. if the pirate captain would have been Chekhov or somebody, I would. <laughs> or I Scotty. would buy that maybe it was the Enterprise, yeah. alternate universe Enterprise. Right. Well, so. whatever. It makes more sense that it wasn't the Enterprise. But look at, I mean, why did they draw the the transporter pad the way they did, or the control panel, or other things? Because the, anyway. because they knew they weren't gonna when they were when he wrote the script, he knew that they weren't gonna be able to create a brand new set. They just had to redress the other one so that it would represent another ship's transporter room. Maybe, maybe. Gotta save Could them be, money, man. man. Can't just Could build be. sets for one scene that doesn't go anywhere. That's, you have to have practical considerations for such things. Yes. <laughs> So the the trash can fight, what did you... I, I thought that was a little silly that he would just throw a trash can at, at Spock instead of just shooting him. Yeah, I would think he would have shot him. And then the ridiculous thing, Spock picks it up, the, the trash can, it's a metal trash can, crushes it to some degree in his hand so he really has a good handle on it, and then hurls it up onto the roof of the uh, of the building. So, right. as you said in your synopsis, he's demonstrating some pretty significant strength there, if he can do that, which he certainly has not demonstrated in all of his previous fights with Beckwith. Right, but, right. And he's finally able to hold Beckwith in some kind of a, you know, arm lock for long periods of time. Yeah, there towards the end. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So, so now we're getting Super Spock, where we have not had him. Exactly. It's actually kind of wimpy, Spock. Stop back with... St- no, no, oh, oh, you knocked me down. Oh, <laughs> and I can't get up. 
Uh, Wimp is Spock. All right. So um, my last comment, because uh, I don't have a lot to say about this one, is uh, the one-page picture of the Enterprise coming back At into the end? existence. Oh, that one. Yes. Yeah. What yeah. do you think about that? That is beautiful. I love that. that well, that one, that whole page spread. Yeah. That that was a money shot. Right. So you got the Enterprise, and then above it, you've got those uh, multiple shots of Kirk. Um, With his eyes squeezed shut because he just exactly. saw Edith bite it. Yep. So it kind of looks like he's in like one of those two-dimensional uh, Admiral Zod things from Superman 2. Right. right. And uh, and there's multiple of those kind of, you know, kind of going around the outer saucer section of the Enterprise. That That is a really good shot. That's really right. nice. And it's cool because the Enterprise kind of looks like it's somewhat Coming out of something. Yeah, so you can kind of see through it. You can kind of see the stars right. behind it. Right. Yeah, it's an awesome shot. I I, yeah. I love that painting uh, more more than I love the uh, Beckwith in the Nova. Yeah, me too. And of course, it was great to see the Enterprise streaking away in the final panel of the comic. Yeah, I had no fire exhaust. I was I didn't like that shot. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Golkey, Mr. Golkey. No, that was a cool shot, too. Yeah. Very good, excellent series, and I have nothing else to say about it. Except no. that, fine job, everyone. Yeah, no, it was great. Yeah, I, I had never, you know, I never read the uh, original screenplay. I guess a lot of Shrek fans have, mm-hmm. but uh, that has never made it my way, so... Uh, it was good. I'm glad they did this, because I don't know if I ever would have known the, the quote-unquote true story. I wouldn't have. Highly unlikely. Too busy. Modern life is just going by so fast. So, And uh, I actually have uh, an, un, an unproduced script. So Amazon, Kindle Store, they had a uh, script that was never produced. And they had that for sale. So it's like, ah, oh, I'm going to get that. So I got it, and I still haven't read the darn thing. I've only read, like, the first uh, ten pages or so. What was it a script for? Uh, it was a Star Trek episode. Oh, really? Okay. That they never produced. And there was talk that uh, Milton Berle was going to potentially be the main guest star on the episode. In hmm. a dramatic turn. So Milton Burrow was wanting to do something a little more dramatic instead of just comedy, and there was uh, some discussions about him possibly playing the main guest star in this particular story. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Huh. So I've got well, it. It's sitting on my iPad, uh, but I've only read like the first ten pages. Well, when you, when you get around to reading it, let me know how it is. I will do that. I will do that. Thanks. All right. Well, if that's that's it, then I guess we'll close up. Uh, next episode, episode one ninety eight, we'll be doing um, back to Wildstorm, and we'll do uh, all of me number one and embrace the wolf number one. Mm. So one's an original series, and the other one's a next generation, and they're both one shots. So should be interesting. Yes. Yeah, I think aside from one more miniseries, Wildstorm is kind of all one-shots from now on. Mm-hmm. There is a uh, 
Deep Space Nine Next Generation crossover, uh, which was, I think, four issues. But aside from that, um, and a Voyager miniseries, uh, everything else is single issues. And in fact, some of them are quite long graphic novels. Like, they, they do a Gorn Crisis that we'll do, and it's it'll be the only one that we cover that day because it's quite long. Hmm. Okay. That sounds good. I like the Gorns. Yeah. No. It should be uh, interesting to see how they treat them. Well, I the doubt story. they look. I doubt. I doubt they look like the ones from the the new video game. Uh, <laughs> slash uh, ongoing issues. Yes. Right. Right. Don't, yeah. don't get too excited to see those. No. I like the old fashioned ones. Come on, and the cheesy lizard outfits. Come on. The big rubber suits. Yeah, Who wouldn't too. like that? <laughs> they fight in slow motion. Come on. I'm a fan. I am too. You don't okay. have to sell it to me. There you go. All right. Well, we'll be back next week. Okay. Thanks for joining us, everybody, on The Review. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.